Last week, I talked about how our journey of faith is a path of trust and love. We don't always know where we're going. The path is not always clear. And where certainty gives way, we find ourselves in a place of trust, where we take the next step, not because we're sure it's the right one, but because we trust it will be. It seems obvious, but we actually have to trust God on this journey of faith. Faith is a posture of personal trust, of leaning into someone with the expectation they will catch you. And it's the kind of trust we need for walking a path that's not clearly defined, but in our case is marked with the sign of the cross. We need trust to walk the path of love. Trust and love go hand in hand, and if last week I leaned more in the direction of trust, I want to lean more toward love today. Love requires trust because so often love requires unbelievable things of us. Things we didn't know we were capable of, things we didn't know we could do or feel. Love requires trust because love leads us to places we've not previously imagined, to love people we thought were unlovable. If God's love, if God's own love is any model for us, then love is going to require a special kind of resilient trust that can come back even after trust has been disappointed, broken, or betrayed. Love requires trust, in other words, because love leads us on the path of forgiveness and reconciliation. Again, it might seem obvious, but just like we actually have to trust God on this journey of faith, we might actually have to love people who aren't perfect on this path of reconciling love, people who've made mistakes, who aren't easy to love. Some of them might be friends or family or strangers. Some might be enemies. And believe it or not, some of these, un, some of these imperfect people we are called to love will also include ourselves. And if it's a reconciling love that we're to be about as children of the reconciling God, then we should expect that the people we're called to love are going to be a mess. And again, that goes for the people sitting around the table at Thanksgiving later this week, but just as much for the person you see in the mirror. Even though God's reconciling love is the beating heart of our faith, the irony of Christian history is that we're just as prone as any other community to make distinctions about who's more deserving of our love and which sins are more deserving of forgiveness and which sins put people beyond the reach of reconciliation. We know we're supposed to love everyone. We know we're not supposed to judge, but, but we judge, and our judgment is an impediment to love. On a Wednesday evening last summer, I was hungry. I often have this one-hour window of time before a 6.30 session meeting where I'm weighing the decision whether to run out and pick up something to eat or to wait till the meeting is over. And that particular night, I decide to go. But where? Good question. Twin dragon. No question. I was going for that hibachi chicken fried rice piled high, chicken and vegetables, those sweet carrots, and that finishing touch, pink sauce. 
it's a good choice. So I head out, and I know I have just enough time to get there, take a breath, eat, and come back, as long as nothing goes wrong. In this story, something goes wrong. I'm heading up George Street toward the four lane, and it's after 5.30 now, so it's slow going, and I just miss the light. I am first in line, but I need to make that left-hand turn, and I can see the line of cars piling up on the other side of the intersection, and I'm afraid I'm not going to get through. And I can see Twin Dragon from where I'm sitting. <laughs> Pink sauce. So I decide to do something. I've seen other people do at this very light, but that I have never done before anywhere. I decide, I'm not proud of this, Carrie. I decide, instead of waiting for a gap in the oncoming traffic, I'm going to zoom out as soon as the light turns green and make that left before anyone else comes out. I'm not proud of this. I've always shaken my head at the people who do this, but they always seem to get away with it. So why don't I give it a try? All right, it's decided. Operation dumb left turn is a go. I watch for the cross traffic light. It goes from green to yellow and I am ready. Their light turns red, mine turns green, and I go for it. My heart is pounding, and I make it through. But then I see it in my rear view. A squad car, which I had not noticed or factored into my grand calculations, turns into the lane behind me. And you know, you have that moment where you think, well, he's behind me, but maybe he's not here for me. I think I'm just going to try to play it cool and see how this goes. I pull into the Twin Dragon parking lot, and sure enough, he pulls in behind me and flips on the lights. Session is in 40 minutes. <laughs> I turn my car off, and I am immediately sweaty. The officer walks up to my window, asks for my license, registration, and insurance. I hand it all over and wait. When he comes back, which always seems to take forever, doesn't it? There are no questions about that stupid turn I made, though I'm sure that's the reason he paid attention to me. The problem is my license plate. The registration is more than six months out of date. <laughs> I try to explain. In Virginia, where I'd lived most recently, there's an option to purchase a registration that's good for two years. And I'd forgotten that Tennessee was different. I, I thought I had more time. Don't we all? He's not having it. And then there's this moment I've heard other pastors talk about. It's the moment when you're pulled over as a pastor, if you're not already wearing your clergy collar, where you weigh the cost-benefit of telling the officer your clergy to see what it gets you. I decided no good was going to come of that. All right, so I'm coming to terms with it. I'm going to get a ticket. And as the officer hands it to me, he points out, casually I might add, my court date. If I get my registration renewed in the next day or so after the ticket is written, he says, depending on the judge, they might waive the, fee the fine, but I still have to show up at court. I am dying. Needless to say, I don't get my hibachi chicken with pink sauce. I head back to church, and as I sit down in the fellowship hall and call that meeting of session to order, my stomach is full, not with food, but with guilt and shame. 
I've mentioned before that there is a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is the feeling of having made a mistake, and shame is the feeling of being mistake. I felt both. (laughs) But Dave, you might be thinking, this is not that big of a deal. Well, you are hearing how an only child deals with being on the wrong side of an authority structure. (laughs) All right, so eventually I see the funny in it. I get my registration renewed, and I come to terms with going to court. I decide it's going to be educational. My date arrives. It's a Thursday evening, and I remember getting dressed that morning for the day. I was particularly selective with my tie. I wanted to be put together, make a good impression. That evening, I get to the city center police department early, hoping I could be seen early, hoping to get through it all sooner, like I'm going to a doctor's appointment. Well, that's not how it works. The doors were locked to the station right up until the time of court. So I'm waiting in line outside in the hot July evening sun, and I start looking around at the folks who are there with me. As I'm taking in the sight of my fellow criminals, alleged criminals, I realize I'm judging them. The way they're dressed and kept, suffice to say no one else is wearing a tie. Some people seem to know each other and are talking like they've been here every single week, like, hey, back again. (laughs) I am judging grammar and syntax, and I think to myself, Dave, did you just say syntax in your head? You think you're better than they are. You think your mistake was honest, silly, really. You think you don't belong here, but they, you think they they belong here. So the experience was educational. As much as I would learn about the system that night, I think I learned more about my own heart. I had figured out a way to rationalize my own mistake, to justify and forgive myself. Why wasn't I extending the same compassion and understanding to them? We all filed into the courtroom together, took our seats, and when the judge arrived, we all, all of us together, without distinction, we all stood. And then a cycle began. The judge calls a name, a person walks up to a lectern and microphone at the front of the room, The judge reads the charge and asks how the person will plead. And then the first thing the person will say is either guilty or not guilty. This is traffic violation night, apparently. And all the people who go before me are pleading guilty. Some have stories they tell alongside their plea, something that might account for the circumstance. And I think, of course, Just like I had an explanation, all the details leading me up to that mistake. I was hungry. I was stupid. I didn't do it on purpose. I was coming from another state and wasn't familiar with Tennessee law. However guilty we think a person is, the willingness to hear a person's story is the beginning of understanding, the place where compassion takes root and love becomes possible. We all had a story that night, but it had to begin with a single word, our plea. And before my name was called, I realized I am about to walk up to a microphone 
in front of a room full of strangers and someone whose actual job is to judge me. And I will have to say the same word most of the other people in this room will say. Guilty. We're all under the same verdict. I'm in no more position to judge than the people sitting next to me. I am not the judge. And my attempts at judgment were an impediment to love. As long as I stood in judgment over these my neighbors, as long as I saw a difference of value between me and them, as long as I saw them as worse sinners than I was, as long as I saw them as a them, I could not genuinely love these my neighbors as I love myself. Today we celebrate the good news of God's reconciling love for us and for all in Jesus. That the way our king reigns is not by elevating some over others, not by killing his enemies, but by dying for them and for all. His justice is not marked with judgment, with blame or retribution, but with compassion, understanding, and forgiveness. Now, there is one view that Jesus died for us on the cross because God's wrath needed to be satisfied and an angry judgment had to be carried out on some victim, but I don't see that in our scripture readings today. Paul does not give us a picture of a wrathful God who needs to work out some anger issues before turning to us in peace. God doesn't reconcile himself to us in Christ. God reconciles all things to himself. And if it's true that all things were created through Christ, then God's love for us is from the beginning of time. If it's true that in Christ all things are held together, then God's love for us is the truth that runs through every fiber of our being. And in our reading from Luke, I see a God in the face of Jesus who chooses not to make more victims by refusing to fight back against his enemies, who chooses the nonviolent way of love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I don't think Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath. I think Jesus died to satisfy God's love. The incredible thing about God's reconciling love for us is there in that amazing conversation among Jesus and those two criminals, and I do mean both of them. We usually only talk about the one who turns to Jesus with those beautiful words we sang earlier, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But Jesus died for that other criminal too. One was not a worse sinner than the other. Yes, he was mocking Jesus, but so were all the other passers-by. So were the soldiers that held the hammer and nails. How was that other criminal who mocked Jesus any different? When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, wasn't he praying for the criminal who mocked him just as much as he was praying for the people who crucified him? But this criminal blasphemed Jesus. He didn't accept Jesus the way the other criminal does, who also rebuked that blasphemer, saying, Do you not fear God? We indeed have been condemned justly, for we're getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Doesn't the mocker deserve God's judgment 
But isn't the reverse exactly the point of God's reconciling love in the cross? Isn't the point of the cross that God refuses to give us what we deserve? That the way of his judgment is forgiveness and restoration, not blame and retribution. Why do we want to identify one criminal as a worse sinner than the other when all three, Jesus included, stood under the same verdict, hanging on the same crosses? The great 20th century theologian Karl Barth spent much of his final years preaching in prisons. And in a sermon on this very story, preached on Good Friday, He says to a room full of criminals, a room full of prisoners, consider the fact Jesus died precisely for these two criminals. He did not die for the sake of a good world. He died for the sake of an evil world, not for the pious, but for the godless, not for the just, but for the unjust, for the deliverance, the victory, and the joy of all that they might have life. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him, the Apostle Paul says. Now, these two thieves literally died with Christ, Bart points out. Did they accept this miracle, understand it, believe it? He says, let us leave that question open. We're not the ones to judge. This much is certain, he says, that the promise was meant for them. The promise of Christ's love for us, that in dying with him we are raised to new life through him, that promise alone is what makes us the church. Therefore, Bart concludes, these two criminals were the first two who, suffering and dying with Jesus, were gathered by this promise into the Christian fold. Today is about how radical God's reconciling love is for us. It makes no distinction between sinner and saint, and it invites us to make no distinction either. Those criminals crucified with Jesus were the beginning of the Christian community, the ones who first bore the cross with him and saw the promise before their eyes. They might not have wanted to be there, but there they were with him in the end. God's love is revealed for us in this, that Christ was crucified not with super disciples, the pure, the good, the perfect examples, but with criminals, one on the left and one on the right. Our physician came not for the healthy, but for the sick. Our shepherd came to seek and save the lost. And his love is made perfect in that he came precisely for those who rejected him, who mocked him, abandoned him, and killed him. There's no place for judgment left in this church of criminals. Because the only one who was in a position to judge was Jesus, and he did not judge us. The judge came down from his bench, letting go of his judgment against us, saying instead, Father, forgive them. And the judge was judged in our place. He stood before the principalities and powers of this world and endured all our judgment against him, all our abuse and rejection until there was nothing left 
to give. Judgment is an impediment to love, and when all our judgment was spent against him, his love was all that remained with nothing in its way. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly I tell you, the love that makes paradise what it is, is shining on your face this very moment. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.